Father, we give you thanks, and we give you praise, and we give you honor. My Father God, for all that you have done, for all that you do, and for all that you are yet to do in our lives. Father, unto you be the glory and the praise and the honor. Unto you, O Lord, unto you, only unto you. In the name of Jesus Christ, your Son, Father. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Uh, Please, if you would open your Bibles and have them uh, prepared to uh, read with me. Uh, We are going to be looking at the visit of these wise men or the Magi to to Bethlehem, to Jerusalem and to Bethlehem in the second chapter uh, of Matthew. The second chapter of Matthew. And um, the first thing I would like uh, for, f- to do with you and for you is, is we want to look at some of the historical and geographical setting of this passage, which I think it's, it's very, very important if we're going to understand this visit and the implications of this visit and the meaning of this visit, not only for the world of Jesus' time, but our own world as well. We are told and and we know from Scripture that Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem of Judea. Uh, For those of you that were here on uh, Christmas Eve, I taught you at that time that Bethlehem means the house of bread. House of bread and and it is uh, very telling that the bread of life is born in the house of bread. In a manger that was to feed animals, uh, that's where Jesus was uh, was placed. Now, Bethlehem, and you can see it up in the map, Bethlehem is about five miles uh, southwest of the city of Jerusalem. And the passage that we're going to be looking at begins with these words. Now, after Jesus was born... After Jesus was born, okay, so Jesus is already being born, some time have passed. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. Now, the Old Testament prophets had prophesied considerably about the coming of the Messiah and had prophesied considerably about where or who this Messiah was going to be, though not identifying him as Jesus, because he couldn't at the time. But the thing that is interesting is that Jesus is the only human being that gets to choose where he's going to be born, and to what mother he's going to be born to, and who his father is going to be. He's the only child in all of humanity that has ever lived that gets to tell the time and when and how and so on. And all of the prophecies of the Old Testament uh, indicate that Bethlehem of Judea, the little town of Bethlehem, was going to be the place 
where Jesus was going to be born or the Messiah was going to be born. Uh, we are also told that this happened in the time of Herod the Great or Herod the King. Uh, Herod was given to rule over Judea, over the Jews as king. Now we know from historians such as the Jewish uh, historian Josephus and some of the other Roman uh, historians that Herod lived from about 73 B.C. to about 4 B.C. Uh, Herod died uh, in the year 4 B.C. That's what the historians uh, tell us. The other thing that we need to know about Herod is that Herod was not Jewish. Herod was an Edomite. Edom uh, was to the south of of Judea, and even on, it went into the other side to the south of the Salt Sea or the Dead Sea. That area was called as Idumea. Idumea was always at enemy with Israel. There was all through the Old Testament. There's a lot of difficulties and enmity between the Jews and the Edomites. Whenever the Jews are down, uh, the Edomites come and they raid the land and they take the Jews that were remaining captives and they sell them as slaves and, and all of these things. So there was lots of bad blood between the Edomites and the Jews. So the first thing we need to notice is that Herod was king over the Jews in a throne that doesn't belong to him, does it? He's an usurper of the throne of the, throne of the Jewish king. He's not Jewish. He shouldn't be governing. However, he was made king by order of the emperor Augustus Caesar. If you remember a little bit of, of Roman history, Julius Caesar was murdered and his adopted son became uh, emperor. But he immediately got in trouble with uh, Antony, right? Antony and Cleopatra. You all remember the movies, Charles Heston and uh, Elizabeth Taylor? Oh, Richard Burton, right. Richard, who did I say? I said Moses? Well, he, that too, that too. <laughs> that too, Richard Burton uh, and, uh, and Elizabeth Taylor. But if you, if you know the story, uh, Herod the Great uh, went to the help of Augustus. And he, he lent all the help that he had to Augustus. So in the defeat uh, that Augustus uh, gave to uh, Antony and Cleopatra, and they both died and committed suicide, uh, in reward, he made him king over Judea, or king over the Jews. You need to understand the ruthless, that uh, Herod was a very ruthless man. And a very ruthless uh, uh, king. Uh, in fact, as, as, as we study the life of Herod, uh, at one time Herod became suspicious that two of his sons were plotting together with their mother uh, to take over the kingdom. So he went ahead and killed both his sons. He went ahead and had them both uh, killed and exiled uh, the mother. He had a number of people killed that were 
uh, a threat to him in some way. And in fact, he even said that when he died, he wanted all of the Jewish uh, high upper class people and priests and things killed that same night. The day he died, he wanted mass killing. Uh, of course, that never happened because he died and people didn't follow through with what he wanted. But that's what he said he wanted to, to do. Uh, he was a ruthless kind of individual who, who having the throne that wasn't his throne, he was very zealous over it. And he didn't, he didn't play around with people who may have wanted to uh, kick him out. We see from the very beginning that he becomes a persecutor of Jesus Christ, doesn't he? From the very beginning. And one of the things he does is in order to exterminate Jesus, in order to, to kill Jesus, when he feels himself fooled by the wise men who don't return to tell him where the Messiah was born, he goes ahead and he kills every child under two years of age. He just goes to Bethlehem and the surrounding areas with all his armies and he just puts to death by the sword to every little child anywhere from zero to two years of age. He was sure that Jesus would fall within that group. That's how ruthless he was, how careless about the life of others and only about himself and the protection of what was considered his. He was also a great builder. It's one of the ways he tried to ingratiate himself with the Jews. So he built up Jericho in an amazing way and put a beautiful palace in Jericho. He also built the great fortress of Masada uh, to the south by the, uh, by the Dead Sea. He also built a very beautiful city of Caesarea by the sea, Caesarea Maritima. And he took great care of building and decorating and adding to the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. That's how he wanted to seem friendly toward the Jews. So we know that it was during the time of this ruthless king that Jesus is born. Now we are told that these men, these wise men, these magi, come from the east. We ought to consider that what is in the east is the land of the old empires, the old great empires. Assyria was one of the greatest empires of the land with its capital in Nineveh. They were then conquered by the Babylonians and it became a great empire that even took Jews uh, into Babylonia to live in exile. The Babylonian exile. The Babylonians were conquered by the Medes or the Medo-Persian Empire. And, uh, and, the, and Persia or the Medo-Persians conquered all that land and governed for a long time. Then they were conquered by the Greeks. By Alexander the Great that went as deep as India and, and conquered a great part of the East. And eventually the Greeks were conquered by the Romans. And that kind of takes us to the time of Jesus. And what we find in the East, we find what's known as the Parthian Empire. Or the land of the Parthians, which was really under Roman control. But 
Parthians and Romans did not get along as any other people around the frontiers. They were always trying to become free and become their own people. So there were lots of problems all the time between Parthia and Rome. These men come from that area, from the east. We don't know who they were in, in name or anything like that. Uh, we know they come from the east because scripture tells us. What we know about the east and what we know from what Scripture tells us is that that whole area is, is famous uh, for uh, astrologers, astrology, the zodiac, and the study of, 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 the, uh, of, of the stars and the moons and, and the astral areas and, and how they would foretell and affect things on earth. But there were also lots of them which were astronomers that studied uh, the stars. Uh, Zoroastrianism grew up in that area. And they were also very known, very well known for magic. Both good magic and bad magic. Or evil magic and white magic if, if you want to look at it that way. Historians tell uh, about warnings about these people from the east. Because of all these things. And the Romans were to be very careful with them, according to what Herodotus tells us. These men come from that area. Now, there are three things I want to debunk right away. Because they are part of our tradition, and, and, the, and there's no evidence in Scripture. And because I am a man of Scripture, if it's not in Scripture, I don't really care to ascertain it or teach it. But the first thing I want to debunk is that, they're not three kings. Okay? There's nothing in Scripture about being three. Okay? Nothing at all. In fact, I would probably say to you that with, with the treasures they were bringing, the likelihood is they brought soldiers. They didn't just come, the three of them riding on a donkey or riding on camels as we like to picture them, all that way, just the three of them with all the the wars that are going on, all the brigands that were in the area, all of these things, the likelihood is that there was a bunch that came in a caravan with these wise men. Plus, if they were men of mean, which I believe they were men of mean, they likely needed servants as well to help them out. So the idea of three kings from Orient are, that's just a song. And we're going to sing it in a bit, I'm sure, but... <laughs> But I, I want you to know that uh, there, there's not three kings. Uh, the second thing is that tradition gives them proper names. Uh, tradition tells us uh, that their names were uh, Melchior, Gaspar, and Balthazar. Where, where in the world we got that? I have no idea because the Bible doesn't tell us those things. They may have been... Uh, Eastern names, but they certainly, at least sounding in Eastern, but uh, I don't know that that's their name. Uh, the other thing that the scriptures do not tell us, not specifically, is that they were kings. Uh, scripture just calls them that they were wise men or magi, uh, but it doesn't tell us that, that they are kings. Uh, however, these people were people of importance. Because I don't think Herod would have allowed them and given them an audience if they were just common, regular people just 
coming into his territory with this idea that they're following a star so that they can uh, worship a king. Especially the way Herod was in his personality. There was something about these individuals that either, either they were indeed rulers of tribes or they were royal ambassadors in some way. Plus the fact that the gifts they are bringing are not common gifts, but rather very expensive gifts, tell us that there is something about these individuals. Uh, so, so that they are king, the scriptures don't tell us, but there is enough implications by what it does tell us that we would assume that Herod was a bit impressed with who these persons were, and maybe uh, uh, he gave them an audience because he wanted to... You know, the, he, he was impressed with them. Okay, so who exactly they were, we don't know. Um, so, so those three things I want to debunk right away because they're not scriptural. The things we do know for certain and the Bible teaches us is that they come from the east. And they come following a star. Now this is this has to be an amazing star. An amazing star if they are astronomers and or astrologers or both, these are not people that are fooled easy by any common star. They say saw something in the heavens that clearly said to them that this star was going to lead them to, to a king that was expected. And I'll tell you a little bit more about some of those expectations. But they were following this star that appeared in the east. Now, much study, speculation, and guesswork has been done to try and either validate or put into doubt the appearance of this star. And I've read a lot of it in different sources, including the internet. And I recommend if you want to look farther into it, Google it, Star of Bethlehem. You'll find a whole lot of information. But some scientists, uh, well, some people have suggested that it's just a myth. Of course, there's always the unbelievers who have to see myth in anything that is miraculous or out of the ordinary. But some scientists have speculated that it could have been uh, what is known as a nova or supernova. A nova or supernova is actually an exploding star or a burning out star. That the light of it, when it explodes, is so much brighter than any other star that you can see in the heavens. So some suggestions might be that it could have been one of those things that happened in the heavens that these wise men look at it and, and clearly this was a moving star, whatever it was, it wasn't stationary. But the reality is that there is no evidence anywhere in the historical books uh, of the East of any visions of any nova or supernova like that. Other scientists have suggested that it could have been a comet, because a comet is indeed uh, moving. Uh, comets come to the earth, or, or the, actually comets are around the universe almost constantly, but they come between the sun and the earth at least once 
a century. And the one comet that we are the most familiar with is Halley's, Halley's Comet. And Halley's Comet comes near the Earth every 77 years or so. Some of the studies and some of the things that have been done that I read about put Halley's Comet around the time of Jesus' birth in this area. In fact, several times it mentions of some things in the heavens uh, which uh, took place at around the time of Jesus. And there's, there's historical evidence that have been written down in different cultures about some of these things. Another suggestion is that it could be the conjunction uh, of three uh, uh, planets that, that give great light, uh, Jupiter, Saturn, and Mars, and it occurs once in a while. And in fact, I, what I've read is that there is a lot of evidence astrologically in Chinese and Korean sources and others as well as modern astrologers of events occurring in the skies during this period of 754 BC and into 12 AD. There are recorded historical evidence of things occurring in the skies during this period of time. Now, I don't know if it was any of these things, but I, I'm sure that God was announcing through the use of creation the birth of His Son. And whether it was a comet, a burning star, or whatever else, I think this was a supernatural star God created, God made, to announce through the use of people who studied creation the God that was about to be born. That I believe with all my heart. Did he use part of creation to do this? Amen. Did he create a special star? Amen. But there was a star. There was something that told these wise men, these individuals, who were not silly or stupid, but rather very learned individuals from the East, that there was something happening that announced the birth of someone very, very special. It is also worth mentioning to you that wise men from the East or people from the East had lived among the Jews for a long, long time. You have to remember that Daniel was exiled to Babylon. That Ezekiel was a prophet all of his life in the East, in Babylon. And that when the Jews were allowed to return to Judea to rebuild the temple, not all the Jews returned with Esdras and Nehemiah. Many of them remained in the east. And if I know anything about our Jewish brothers, is that wherever they go, they establish communities. They come together, as all of us would do when we live in exile. We would want to meet together with people of our own country. And I guarantee you that these Jews living in exile that created community read the Torah and read the prophets and it is likely that they taught it to whomever else wanted to know about it. 
so that these wise men could easily have become very familiar with the prophecies about the Messiah that would be born. Maybe they didn't have all the details, but they certainly might have heard from the Jews about the looking forward to the Messiah. But it wasn't just the Jewish prophecies. There were lots of other prophecies being written about, about a king that would be born in the East. For example, um, Cicero wrote about a person, an individual that would be born in the East that would rule over the earth. Virgil, writing about the prophecies of Sibyl, uh, the Sibelis, he says, A chaste woman smiling on her infant boy with whom the Iron Age would pass away. This is Virgil. Suetonius, the Roman historian, speaks and quotes an author a Roman author that speaks about how fearful the Romans were of a king that was to be born on the east that was going to rule the entire earth. To the point that this particular author says that the the Senate ordered no children to be born on a specific period of time in a year so that no child would be born. I don't know that that ever happened, but they ordered it. Uh, Confucius in the East, uh, if you ever read, and I've read some of Confucius, he speaks about the saint that was to be born. And another group, I won't tell you more about it, but speaks about the universal king. And there's even Chinese writings about someone that was to be born. So there's all these prophecies all over the known world in addition to the Jewish prophecies, and these wise men may have come to know, if they are at all uh, studious individual, may have come across some of these prophecies, and then there's this star that appears, uh, this special star, and they figure this is it. This is the star that is going to guide us. This is the time of the fulfillment of all the prophecies, and we're going to go be part of that. So they come looking for a very special king that was to be born or that had already been born and announced by this special star. And their journey takes them through Beth, through uh, Jerusalem and into Bethlehem where the star stops moving over a house. And one of the things I want to share with you, I want you to see in Scripture is it doesn't refer to Jesus anymore as the baby, uh, but rather the child. And there is no more mention at this time of a cave or a manger, but rather the wise men come to the house. So the the very least we can tell from the passage of chapter 1 to chapter 2 is that some time has passed between the birth of the child and the finding of the child by these wise men. The journey had taken them there. The most important verse to me in the whole chapter 2 
most important verse is, is verse 11, and it says, When they had come into the house, they saw the young child and Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, we, we call this day, today in particular, Epiphany. Epiphany, the word Epiphany comes from the Greek, epiphaneo, or to look upon, or to look on, or to present something to be seen. And basically what Epiphany celebrates is the day in which Jesus Christ is presented to the world, not just to shepherds. He is presented to a Gentile world because Jesus was to be the king not only of the Jews. He was to be the king of all men and women through time and space. So Epiphaneo is to look upon the child and my prayer is that you will look upon the child today. And that you will see in that child that was born in Bethlehem. The king of all kings, the lord of all lords, the king of the universe, God almighty who have taken on flesh from the Virgin Mary. That we would have a chance to look upon this child with our hearts, with our minds, with our spirits. And in looking upon him, that we too would fall down and worship him. Epiphany. Now, Jesus becomes visible to the world and for all the people. But in becoming visible, I want you to know this, in becoming visible, he becomes available. Jesus is not a secret kept in heaven. In becoming visible and being seen by, by Gentiles and by all who ever saw Jesus, he becomes available to them to be their king, to be their savior, their healer, their Lord. And when we see Jesus ourselves and we behold his glory, he becomes available to us. He becomes available in our day, in our home, in our families. He becomes available because it is by faith that we come and we look upon him and we celebrate him and worship him. Gold is offered to him to honor his kingship. Because that's the kind of thing that you would bring to kings. You don't bring cheap stuff. Gold is the most valuable thing that could be had. And in bringing gold and opening their treasure and bringing gold to him, they are celebrating and honoring the fact that he is the king they were looking for and the fulfillment of all the prophecies of old. They bring to him frankincense. Now frankincense is very expensive perfume and that is to honor his divinity. It's to honor his divinity. It is very expensive perfume that you would burn in worship, that you would burn at times that you're coming close to the Lord. And they bring to him 
myrrh. Myrrh honors his humanity. It is also a very expensive and sweet-smelling perfume kind of, of spice. But it's primarily used to anoint the body of the dead. It could be used for other things like perfume. But it is used especially so that the body doesn't smell. They would perfume it. They would wrap it. They would put myrrh on it. And if you remember when Jesus died, the women came to the temple, to the sepulcher with spices. And possibly myrrh was some of it if they could get it or could afford it. But the idea was always to anoint the body of, of the person. And so they bring unto the Lord these three gifts, very expensive gifts. They're not cheap. And they bring them and they open their treasure and they offer to them, to, to Jesus, they offer to Jesus this thing that was very, very valuable to them and that they had carried all the way from the east, days and nights, as a special act of worship to the child to be born. And the amazing thing that is to remain in our hearts is that these, these men are, if they are royal ambassadors, these are men of importance. If they are kings of their own tribes, these are men of importance. These are men that are used to being served. These are men that understand luxury. And these are men that when they find the child, they become the servants. And they do the act of a servant, they fall down before the child. They fall down and they worship. They worship this little boy. This little tiny boy that as a human may not have even possibly understood what was going on. And they throw themselves at his feet. And in doing that, they're offering themselves. I cannot tell you that they were converted. I cannot say that that was conversion. I cannot say that they didn't go back home to continue ad adoring stars and, and all kinds of things. But at that moment, they were acknowledging by revelation of God. They were acknowledging that one superior to them, superior to their king, superior to Augustus, was before them. And they bowed down and they worshipped. And they worshipped. And I think you and I are invited to the presence of the Lord to worship. 
And worship is not about singing. Worship is an attitude of the heart that leads to singing. It's an attitude of the heart that leads to praising. It's an attitude of the heart that leads to serving. It's an attitude of the heart that leads to surrendering. That leads to surrendering. Because you recognize that one greater than you. Your Lord. Your Savior. Your King. Has given you an audience. Jesus Christ. Is God of God. And man of man, of a woman. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And as we celebrate Epiphany, we get to look at the child. We look at him, we see him. Whatever the picture is in us, we look at Jesus, and the only proper response is worship. Bowing down. Bowing down with your heart. Because when your heart is bowed down before the Lord, believe me, everything else gets bowed down too. Camels, cars, houses, faiths, beliefs, everything is bowed down to the servant, to the service of the Lord. And that's, my friend, what this wise men from the east did this day as an indication that the whole creation is to call to worship the Lord whether Jew or Gentile for he is the Lord of all Amen Amen. I pray that this year brings Jesus into your family and into your home in greater measure and brings you into his heart and into his ministry and into his life in greater and greater measure because at the end of it all there's nobody but Jesus one God Father, Son and Holy Spirit Amen